I would call it capacityism. It's the notion that a being has meaning solely through its capacities. And I think my work, my, my interests have been in sort of really questioning that. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're joined today by David Gisson, designer, author, and educator. David joins us today to discuss his interest in architecture and the bodies that it imagines. David, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Charles. I really appreciate it. It's really lovely to see you. I uh, hope you're staying well. Um, I mean, among other topics that um, you've been engaged in in your work uh, in the recent past, I know that you've had a, a, a keen and developing ongoing interest in the the ways in which uh, the discipline of architecture, the profession of architecture, the built environment more broadly um, anticipates certain kinds of bodies and maybe, you know, thinks less clearly about others or affords uh, affords accommodation uh, to certain kinds of bodies. Um, tell us about that interest and how you found that um, as a central focus in your work. Yeah, um, thanks for that great question. Um, I went through architecture school, both as an undergrad and graduate student, as a, as a disabled person. Uh, I'm an amputee. I have been um, since I was a teenager. And I've always, um, as a matter of course, had to in interpret uh, my experience of spaces and urban spaces and buildings um, through the capacities and incapacities of my body. And um, for years, both as a student and as a professional, I've really thought about ways to bring in my perspectives um, into architecture and uh, urbanism and landscape as well. And, and I have to be honest, it's, it's been a struggle. Um, and I find that the subject has often um, come into my work indirectly as a kind of metaphor about um, the kinds of aesthetics that... Um, we might advance in architecture from like the whole to the disfigured, um, or it's emerged as um, in, a, in a kind of more almost um, absolute functional form of activism, like through my own work in um, trying to recruit more disabled students into the various schools within I've work, worked. Lately, um, I've really been able to take um, a longer look at, um, at the discipline, its history in this country in particular, um, but also elsewhere. Um, the practice of architecture, the practice of urban design and landscape design, and really think about how um, humanness and the capacities of human bodies are figured into various discourses and practices. So that extends from discussions about um, history and monumentality, to ideas about environment, to ideas about nature, the kinds of physical qualities we valorize within urban spaces, and even extends into discussions about architectural form and the construction of buildings. Um, so I've been um, really pleased actually to finally be engaging with a topic in the way that I want to engage it. And, um, and after having thought about it um, for so long. I'm, I'm struck in, in thinking about your work and, and this and other topics, how many, you know, both metaphors, but also ways in which the body is implicated in architectural thought. I mean, from the idea of the, the, the building itself as a kind of analog to the human body, the idea of architectural typology and its kind of idealization of a certain ideal form. You know, I mean, there's so many ways in which 
bodies have been inscribed into architectural thought, as you as you say. Um, and at the same moment, I'm struck by the the range that you're you've, you're also interested in advocacy, right? So it's not simply a matter of a kind of theoretical or historical reflection, although that's something that's you know concerning you. It's also a way in which the architect, as a uh, as a citizen, might be uh, more fully uh, present. So so tell us about the the kind of um, research that you're doing just now and the form that that might take going forward. Yeah, so I'm working on um, a few different projects right now. And I would, um, what, what both these projects share is trying to um, shift a, um, uh, a more recent or let's say um, contemporary focus around architecture and disability um, on the topic of access and, and accessibility and let's say mobility and shifting it into something else, okay? Um, so one project um, that I'm working on, I just finished up a, a book, which I can talk about at some length called The Architecture of a Disability that's now um, in the production process with its press that goes into many of the things I just mentioned. Another project that I'm, I'm working on um, right now um, is a collaboration with a, a large group of people. Um, it includes um, the architectural historian, Irene Chang, um, the architect, Brett Snyder, um, Georgina Klieg, who's a blind um, uh, art theorist, uh, Jaron Herman, who's a disabled dancer, Rod Henmai, who's an architect who specializes in um, uh, housing, Javier Abona, who's a geographer, and Chip Lord, who's a, a founding member of Ant Farm. And so we um, put together a, um, a proposal to, um, for, for a, a, a uh, request for proposals that was launched by Barry Bergdahl and Juliana Barton at the Architecture in New York to um, imagine the, um, the future of the American city and after everything, um, and after the inequities that have come to light from, um, from COVID and um, people's um, uneven ability to cope with the virus. And so one of the things that they were um, looking for were people that might be able to um, engage ideas about um, disability and human impairment in, in terms of the city. And, and generally speaking, I think it was an access driven approach, but what we argued was that we could bring um, a more general disabled critique of the city. And one of the things, just to begin just playing this project, one of the things that was so unusual about our approach was that half of the members of our team have rather serious impairments. So to have a team that's made up of blind, deaf, and mobility, um, people that are partially immobilized, um, you know, working together and finding a way to come together and, and draw and think and discuss works, you know, because architecture tends to be very visual, um, was, was exciting. And um, we came up with a very fun proposal. Um, and we were um, one of the teams that was selected um, um, for this um, larger project, which will be exhibited um, this spring in April. And, um, and yeah, it's just been a really great project and I can, I can tell you a little bit more about it. So um, one of the things that we um, settled on as we were meeting as a team was to do a project about Berkeley, California. Now what makes Berkeley interesting is that Berkeley is the birthplace of the um, independent living movement in the 1960s and 1970s. And for people that may not be familiar with that, the independent living movement was um, primarily a, um, led by a group of wheelchair using students at the University of California, Berkeley, who were partially institutionalized while they were students at the university and wanted to quote unquote mainstream, which means lead a completely normal um, student life and not 
um, and, li- and live autonomously. Some of our listeners may have seen this extraordinary documentary called Crip Camp and some of the other accounts of that history uh, that came out recently. Both uh, UC Berkeley and also Illinois Urbana-Champaign factored in that, as I recall. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Judith Human, who's in that documentary, was one of the later leader, leaders of the Center for Independent Living. Anyway, so Berkeley has this history that's um, very much um, rooted in the in the history of disability rights in this country. Berkeley also has another side, which is Berkeley is the birthplace or one of the birthplaces of the um, of single family zoning in the U.S. And so our project and single sorry to elaborate a bit single family zoning is tangled up with all types of um, racially discriminatory housing policies in the US and all forms of economic exclusion from neighborhoods. Imagines not just certain kinds of bodies, but certain kinds of nuclear family formations as well. Yeah, the thrust of our project is what would a disability critique of property be in the American city? And so working with this very large team, um, we've explored ways to combine lots to create unusual housing typologies or to stitch existing homes together. We are encouraging the idea of trespass as a positive way to develop new routes through blocks and to defy the kind of logic or literally the physical parameters that often surround property and keep people from entering other people's property. And all of the, these, the various strategies we've developed Um, sorry, through looking through these various strategies and working with our team, one of the things that we discovered was that through addressing this kind of disability critique of property, that we were actually making a place that was really fun. And I think one of the things that's been, um, I would say, surprising to some people that aren't disabled and looking at our team is that it's not about these kind of sad disabled people who are trying to access the city, but really reimagining um, the very understructure of urban space through a disability perspective, and one that actually makes a place that looks really pleasurable, communal, and joyful, really. Because of the success of advocacy and the kind of access movement and legislation, but also the, the kind of normalization of certain practices of access at the urban scale, there's a certain set of urban furnitures, a certain set of urban expectations that are kind of, in a way, baked into many urban environments today. And in part, that's a great success, I would imagine. But at the same moment, looking again with uh, different eyes or with different senses, differently abled points of view, strikes me as, as liberating us from a certain kind of, you know, staid set of assumptions about a minimum condition of accommodation in the built environment. Does that sound fair to you? Yeah, totally. Also, I think another intervention in, the, in this project and in my own thinking generally is that one of my own critiques of, of the pursuit of accessibility, particularly in urban space, is that it's about um, disabled people having access to the city as a kind of space of circulation and mobility. Okay. So the question then is, if you are a disabled thinker about cities, is what you want access to circulation and mobility, or do you want to question those things as inherent urban values that that are, you know, that are not just they're not just self-evident, right? They're they're completely built into space, and they one of the reasons that cities are so inaccessible is because of that emphasis on circulation and mobility, and it extends to more than just people. I mean, the whole Um, history around the center of independent living and other disability rights movements in terms of trying to make um, sidewalks and streets more accessible is is dealing with curbs. As you know, because you're a landscape architect and theorist, curbs emerge from a hydrological vision of urbanism in which water must flow, right? And so it has to, you know, move in a certain kind of way. It also impacts the, the slope of streets and the angling of sidewalks, all things that most people that have mobility impairments find really difficult to contend with. 
So my question is, why don't disabled people engage in a hydrological critique, right? Rather than just like limit it to like a curb cut, why aren't disabled, disabled urbanists such as myself and others, like why don't they begin to align with people that are really questioning hydrological models in cities around environmental parameters and create alignments and begin to look at this from multiple perspectives and say there's many different um, reasons that this kind of paradigm of the city should be rethought, right? This, this kind of 19th century city that emphasizes flow, circulation, visibility, it's not necessarily working for a lot of different reasons, right? Mm. I mean, part of what's so interesting about the, the locus of the curb is it also implicates a critique of automobility. Is that right? I mean, there's also a kind of pushing back, not just on hydrological systems, but also on the idea that, well, the default setting is for automobility and then we'll all work around that as differently abled uh, pedestrians. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, when I was researching this book, um, one of the things that surprised me was the emergence of this um, kind of, you know, assemblage of, of slope street, angled sidewalk curb, etc. We think of it as being French in derivation. There really wasn't a place even in Paris with all those things integrated until about 1830. So it's not, you know, it's not as pervasive as you might think. And people have um, critiqued it for any number of reasons, right? So yeah, yeah, all of it, automobility, water, the movement of, of pedestrians, just disabled people. Yeah. I've learned, David, not to ask authors about their books until they're in print, but I can't help but ask. So the architecture of disability is going to be out on what timeline? So we're here in early 2022. Uh, when can we expect to see this? Yes. So this book is coming out in um, the late fall, being published by the uh, University of Minnesota Press. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited about it. It's written in a very approachable way. I, hope, I really hope people enjoy it and get something out of it. And it's, again, it's, I, I wrote a book very much with my um, student self in mind, something that I could have read back then and that maybe would have made um, some of my own thinking a little bit easier about this topic. Now that you've you know put it in this context, David, there's a relative paucity of material on this topic. In spite of the numbers of people that you've been collaborating with and the number of people interested in the topic, would you describe there being you know extensive literature today on the topic, or is it something that you found had been understudied? There are some great books that I can recommend. The author David Serlin has worked on problems around buildings and cities and disability for for a very long time. Ray Lifshitz. Um, who's written some of the first kind of ethnographic studies of disabled people has written. Some of his books are, are great sources. Yas Boys, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, in London, has done great books on disability. Amy Hamrai uh, wrote a very interesting history of access. Bess Williamson, a terrific and very um, approachable history of the, the pursuit of access in the United States. And Elizabeth Guffey is also a historian, writes a lot about accessibility. I mean, the one thing about um, almost all of these works is that they're very much focused on the problem of accessibility, which is something that, of course, I appreciate and the direct beneficiary of, of these histories and legacies and the activism around that. But I, in my own practices and, and, and writing, I'm, I'm trying to shift the discussion away from that a bit yeah, without diminishing the very serious work that people have done in the past. I'd add to that list, uh, in addition to the authors that you've mentioned, the work of uh, Sarah Hendren here at, uh, at Olin uh, College, mm -hmm. you know, or what, what kind of body do, how we meet the built world, I think has been on a number of reading lists, including, including my own. Yeah, thanks for mentioning. I'm interested in where you see this kind of line of research, not just your own book, but also mm -hmm. this this kind of impetus, because it strikes me as, as something that is, you know, as soon as you describe it has, you know, applicability to a range of disciplines, 
sheds light on a number of different practices, of course, is relevant to all sorts of people in different ways of work. Where do you imagine this kind of impetus going? Like over the course of the next several years, if you continue with this as an interest, could one imagine, for example, a kind of sub-discipline of architecture, a little bit like preservation has emerged in the past century, right? That there's the kind of, you know, set of discipline and disciplinary understandings and a set of practices in which you can have a degree program, you can have a, a body of literature, or are there other forms that this uh, topic might take for you? Yeah, that's a great question. First and foremost, I would argue that, you know, is, is recruiting more people that could never imagine a career in architecture into this profession. First and foremost, as an educator, is, is really um, intensifying recruitment efforts to bring disabled people into architectural school. That's, that's something I've pursued in the past, and it's something that I, I really want to continue thinking about. Like, you know, how can we make our institutions um, usable? Um, not just usable, sorry, like meaningful for disabled students. And so that is, is a very long um, and involved um, practice that I really want to think about because I think architectural education in, in particular, uh, maybe more so than landscape or, or urban design, has been very much off lim limits to students. And this extends from everything to the, the physical nature of our schools, what we sort of valorize about our school spaces, the way we teach ideas about form or aesthetics, the way we teach history, the almost um, impossibility of making construction sites accessible when students eventually get internships with architecture professions. I mean, most of the, uh, most, most well-known architects who have disabilities were fully able-bodied practicing architects for years and then became disabled later in life, right? Um, so that's the first and foremost. The second is, Things like this project that I'm working on in Berkeley, I just think it's opening up so many exciting directions. I would enjoy working with this team, many other people, and really rethinking urban spaces from the block to, to the neighborhood, to an entire city, I suppose, um, through the lens of disability. I just think it's such an important place to begin thinking about this. And it's, it's a place to, to connect and touch with other people who are reimagining urban space and the ideas that are instantiated within it from perspectives of race and gender and class as well, particularly in this country. And then, you know, I think, I think there's room to, to write more about this topic and to think about some other, other themes and aspects of it that, that haven't been written about. And again, that might reflect on my own, my own experiences. Given that part of your research is, you know, using historical material and you're, you've done work extending from, you know, the 19th uh, century and, and beyond, is the inscription of a certain kind of idealized type of body or a certain kind of optimal, you know, kind of formal configuration, is that a relatively modern conceit or is that something that you think is really embedded in the, the origins of our field? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. You know, there are many um, historians and, and writers, Anthony Bidler, Diana Agres come to mind, um, who've written about the, the kind of the body of architecture going back to ancient Roman, you know, the writings of Vitruvius and, and carrying that up into the present. So yeah, I mean, I think um, there's a long history there. I think the, the histories of the 19th and 20th century hurt more, so to speak. They sting a bit more. They were more, more, more efficient and direct. <laughs> yeah, more efficient and direct. Um, yeah, that's right. I just, I think what surprised me when I was working on this book project, what really surprised me was how um, 
the, like it's just bottomless, just the um, disparaging comments and ideas about disfigurement and disability. I mean, one of the things that um, I, I think about so much is how the, um, the aesthetics of architectural form that were sort of crafted in the late 19th century by all these um, Swiss German and German language um, thinkers, just the, the things that they say about what form is, right? So, you know, Heinrich Wülflein, who's like the preeminent theorist of form, argues that form is what happens when a body escapes this kind of incapacitation, right? He describes this kind of wheezing prone person who can't get up. What an image for our time right now. And he says, this is the epitome of formlessness of a kind of, of a kind of negative aesthetic, right? And I just think about how that particular kind of concept of, of what form is, is this kind of ascension rising up this expressive vitality, how embedded it is in, in so many kinds of aesthetics. And, and personally, you know, how in my, my own work, extending back to like stuff around subnature and other projects, I've just been so against this concept that vitalistic expressionism is like the ultimate kind of aesthetic aspirations of, a, of an architecture and urbanism or environmentalism. I would call it capacityism. You know, it's not like ableism. It's the notion that a being has meaning solely through its capacities. And I think, excuse me for generalizing this, but I do think that extends from ideas about human beings to the kinds of um, nature or properties of landscapes that are valorized, especially in contemporary practices. And I think if anything, you know, my, my work, my, my interests have been in sort of really questioning that. And I, and I, I only realized recently that it was really about opening up a space for, for how I experienced the world. But, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing to have been working on these problems for so long and then only realizing recently how personal it is. I just, I, I find that so extraordinary, you know. And connected is what I was going to say. I don't know if you ever, you know, engage in this process where you're like, have these aha moments, like, oh my God, I've been working on this problem for years and how... Only after the fact, usually when somebody else points it out, right? Yeah. You, you mentioned subnature, architecture's yeah. other environments, um, yeah. uh, which uh, came out in 2009, I think for, for many, you know, for many readers was uh, one of the first moments that uh, they came to understand your work and your interest in environments uh, broadly. I mean, a part of the modern history that you're touching on, I think not just capacityism, I would argue, but also the, the vanishingly thin margin between that kind of an approach to thinking about architecture on the one hand and, you know, phonology and certain kinds of ideal, idealized bodies. I mean, a part of what's interesting about the focus on the body is that it brings questions of race, it brings questions of gender, it brings questions of, of generation, right? Because the differently abled body is not just a question of capacity or uh, ability per se, it's also that we're able to do or have different capacities at different times in our life, right? I mean, that framework of thinking about the able body as the model for, for the built environment also implicates huge swaths of our lives in which we're completely different uh, bodies altogether. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't have so much to say about that in terms of generalizing this concept more, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there is, there's, a, there's a line of argument, which I, I want to say, I, I try to be very careful around, which there's a line of argument that says that, that everyone will experience disability at some point in their life or another. And therefore, relative to other forms of um, how we might think about ourselves, that disability has a certain kind of availability that maybe ideas about gender, experience of gender and race do not. I 
am sympathetic with that idea, but I just have to push back that it's how one enters um, and when one <laughs> enters the experience of illness or sickness or disability that can sting differently for different people, you know, for, um, you know, it's, and, and also, you know, that as, as many people have pointed out, that variance of disablement is, is very, is in itself very uneven based upon gender and race as well in this country in particular. So what, one of my um, sort of mentors in thinking about these things is somebody named Yomi Rong, who's um, in the Bay Area. And she was the first black woman director of the Center for Independent Living. And um, one of the things that she pointed out as the director was that the Center of Independent Living may have been started by mainly white men using wheelchairs, young white men using wheelchairs, but its constituency now and the people that it serves are women of color. And most people in the Bay Area that are disabled are women of color. So, you know, her argument is it's in parallel with some of the things that I'm interested in. Her argument is this emphasis on like independence and autonomy and, and you know, mobility and circulation and uh, maybe this doesn't necessarily, um, maybe this isn't necessarily what the, the, the group that uses the Center for Independent Living needs now. Maybe they need housing and financial security and healthcare. And it's a different, you know, it's a different um, experience of disability, let's say, um, based upon all these um, intersecting um, subject positions. David, I understand that among the topics that interest in uh, disability in the extra the city has led you to is um, what's been referred to as the uh, the dark turn in contemporary urbanism. Uh, tell us about that. <laughs> First of all, I think the dark turn is your coinage, Charles. But um, but uh, that, aside from that, <laughs> this connects to what we were so part of a disability critique of the city. I think, in addition to thinking about infrastructural ideas and others would also consider the kinds of environmental values that are valorized in urban space. And so one of the things that, that I've, I've noticed directly is, is that um, sunlight is um, built into urban space as a kind of automatic urban good that seems beyond question. Like this extends from where I live now in New York City to where I, I first began really thinking about this idea was when I was living in Vienna, Austria. So Vienna is a city that was um, rebuilt um, between World War I and World War II around the ideas of, of sunlight and air, ideas that were translated from um, urban um, health reform, sanitation movements, and, and the values of, of modern architecture and modern architectural theory. And so when I was living in Vienna, I was actually there um, as a guest of the Academy of Fine Arts. Uh, they were working on a project on how to deal with urban heat gain. So I was working on this project and which was mostly being dealt with as through the um, tools of landscape. And as I was walking around the city, I realized one of the inherent problems of, um, of Vienna is that it was reconstructed around intensifying sunlight through numerous urban spaces, whether it's the way the buildings were set back or the, um, the kind of use of modern terraced housing that extends from early 20th century work all the way up to the Alterla, these gigantic housing estates um, um, by Harry Gluck that are designed to intensify sunlight on the surfaces of buildings. And so, and I was also considering some of, you know, some of your work on, um, on solarization. And so I was wondering if there was a place to, um, for another kind of modernity to build in darkness into urban space. And I realize that sounds provocative. And part of this involves rethinking architectural form. 
part of this involves rethinking architectural environment. But most of all, it involves rethinking who can can um, you know who can really navigate these kinds of urban spaces and which one is blasted with sunlight, right? It's for some you know we often we talk about shade poverty, which is critical, um, particularly in the United States, and how various areas of cities don't have enough um, shade trees or even shaded areas near bus stops and others, and the intense heat exposures, particularly with um, the warming climate of American cities right now. Um, but there's also a place for a disability view on this to say that, um, you know, that it's, it's not working and that some of the most um, vulnerable groups are elderly people, people that have very poor health or are disabled and very young children. Part of um, this project, which I was working on both at the Academy of Fine Arts and then eventually um, at Yale University as a guest there, was to really rethink architectural form relative to darkness. And so I think it's sort of built into the idea of architectural form and the kind of vitalistic concepts of architectural form that one intensifies and, and literally expresses the way it negotiates the intensification of sunlight and transparency into it. So what would happen if you upended those values and, and what kinds of spaces, urban spaces and an architectural form might, might result from that? Once you frame it that way, it's uh, extraordinary how the really the history of planning, the history of kind of regulating urban form in the modern era has been inscribed through this idea of more sunlight and air as an unqualified good. You know, think of the British right to light laws or the mythical origins of planning in Manhattan in the 1916 zoning ordinance and that inscribed literally in not just not just legislation and zoning and kind of uh, practices and norms, but equally in the body of the buildings themselves. Thinking of you know the modern city as a kind of instrument of public health writ large, and then as we see, you know, increased uh, urban heat island, increasing extreme heat events, and in a city like Los Angeles, for example, uh, Christopher Hawthorne, um, the chief design officer in LA has made you know, equitable distribution of shade among his chief priorities in a context where there's plenty of shade for those that can have private gardens and private automobility. But in fact, the populations that are the most vulnerable, as you suggest, are those that can't always escape um, into the, 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 the protection of shade itself. So how might we think about the contemporary city from the point of view of shade? We know that there have been an increased interest in programming evening events, nightmares, the idea of you know nocturnal phenomenal experience is something I see quite often in the literature. Uh, what other you know implications might there be for thinking about the future of the American city? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think from my perspective, I think a lot of the work that um, I've been exploring is really focused on on the experience of the sidewalk, experience of being somebody who's who's walking through cities or or is waiting at a bus stop, right? I think the um, very obviously that in this country, the very hard line that's imagined between the building and the kind of um, landscape accoutrements that one finds on a sidewalk really needs to be rethought, right? You know, it's, it's again, the kind of values that we have in our profession, the upholding um, an architecture that uh, minimizes shadow as somehow being inherently good <laughs> is something that just I find so mind-boggling. There have been several buildings in Manhattan that have been um, built recently that have promised shadowless space. Well, I think it would be fantastic if the urban codes in New York were somehow transformed or changed to, to rethink that value and say that, you know, revisiting the kinds of codes that were developed in 1911 and later in the 50s, like what would it mean 
in, a, in, in terms of equity and shade equity. I love that term. So thank you for bringing it up. What would it mean for shade equity to rethink those values? Is there a way to create urban codes or, or, or encourage people to, to build shade into um, the architecture that they introduce into the city? I feel like we're on the verge of a proposition of shade bonuses okay, yeah. after, you know, a century or more of decrying the shadows in the park or, you know, the, the kind of anxiety around, uh, around verticality and the idea of, you know, eclipsing, you know, uh, urban populations into darkness and perpetuity. I mean, of, of course, it's a, it's a different time and a different set of uh, challenges. Yeah. One thing that's really important for me to mention is when I was working on this with my students, one of the things that we discovered was that this critique of solarization actually emerges at the same time that there's these efforts by reformers to create these more solarized spaces. So the most famous is, um, I mean, somebody, many people who are students of the city would know is Camillo Zitta, who um, in Vienna who argued that the spaces like the Ringstrasse and the other urban plans that were intensifying sunlight were just going to make life miserable for elderly infirm people walking through the city. And he actually wrote, he wrote about this um, as being a potential problem. And part of his, his turn to this kind of historicist aesthetics where he rebuilt parts of the medieval city was awful rebuilding some of the, the environmental characteristics of a, of a medieval city into these newly developed um, areas of Vienna. So there's, just one last thing is that when I was working with the um, city of Vienna, one of the things that was so striking was that the planners there were actually proposing changes to urban planning guidelines to create a street profile that was closer in character to a medieval street profile than to a more modern one. So this idea of returning to that narrow street is actually being reconsidered by a, a major municipal organization that has the power to build quite a bit of space in the city. And beyond the implication for um, for for our bodies in space and our different abilities, uh, presumably there would also be questions of energy and carbon, greenhouse gases, and other you know thermodynamic or you know met met metabolic advantages to this. No. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, completely. And another thing that was so surprising with with their and our research is that the. Um, the ventilation in many of those streets is, is much better than, than um, let's say, the early, early 20th century um, uh, modernist architects would lead us to believe. I, I realize we're in a different time. Are we in a different time in terms of diseases? <laughs> Generally speaking, we're in a different time in terms of um, certain kinds of communicable diseases. But the larger point is, is that um, those kinds of spaces have been... Um, seen as, as so abject, largely because of the real estate dynamics surrounding them when they were packed full of people in tenement buildings. But environmentally, they perform in ways that are very different than the historic literature would suggest. Yeah. David, I want to um, end by asking you a little bit about the kind of arc of your research. As we've said, you know, you've been you know, a designer and an author interested in environments and bodies and kind of the relationship between the built environment and, and various forms of environmental performance, let's say. Um, your 2014 book, also with Minnesota, Manhattan Atmospheres, deals directly with some of these questions with respect to atmosphere, air, literally the air of the, of the city. And I, I want to ask you about this in, in the context of COVID, you've referred to it. We've referred to it in this conversation a number of times. And in the wake of the Spanish flu, for example, at the beginning of the 20th century, we saw a kind of radicalization, I would argue, about the urban arts and architecture in response to these conditions. And I think many of the implicit and explicit kind of codes and rules and habits and practices we've inherited from the 20th century were really still seen to be in response to the crisis of, of that pandemic. 
Do you imagine that in the wake of COVID, if we can even invoke that at this point, you know, at some point in the future, do you, do you imagine, you know, the disciplines and professions of the built environment being transformed by this experience? I mean, you've been thinking about air and atmosphere and the shape of the city for, for as long as anyone I know. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think I I think the answer is it might, and I'm actually frightened by that possibility. I think I think one of the things that I've really um, joined up with others and exploring and thinking of like Giovanna Barassi and Marco Zardini's work is is really thinking about how do they coin this term, demedicalize architecture, right? And that sickness should not automatically be attributed to an answer within function that's you know or ailment and function are not inherently related and i think one of the um by that i mean that given a certain illness all of space has to change to um, address potential threat of this illness i think as we found in this in this country in particular the issues around illness are, are very structural <laughs> Um, they're, they're built in in ways that um, architecture can address in ways outside of a direct engagement with health, things about housing and access, access to outdoor space in cities, ways to, you know, to, to create economic and health security in cities. These are really important things. I think the a kind of functionalist architectural response to COVID frightens me a great deal. And, um, and based upon what I know, um, I really think architects and urbanists should should shift to a different kind of project when engaging the health of people and um, ideas about disability and illness. David Gisson, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Charles. I really enjoyed speaking with you. You've been listening to Future of the American City curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.